Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics, as well as self-improvement. If you want to find out more about me, visit my website, jake-parker.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker back on the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today is Jay Vincent. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually knows this, but I think I first came across him, um, our mutual friend, Lawrence Neal, who has the podcast and business HIT, which is high intensity business, HIB, I guess. Uh, HIT is high intensity training. It's a big part of Jay's life. He has his YouTube, which I've checked out, um, where he talks a lot about that. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'll let you kind of go on here. But I think that where you got started was you wanted to put on some additional for your modeling career and kind of reached a plateau. And you that it was at that point that you discovered high intensity training. Am I am I kind of sounding right there? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So I, you know, I've been weight training since I was 16 years old, I think is when I started just, you know, as many football players do, mm-hmm. um, to improve their strength and hopefully, you know, to transfer to the game. So, you know, I had been training for about, about seven years, eight years at that point. You know, I started at a, at a measly 150 pounds at 16 years old. And, uh, with the style of training I initially adopted, which was your typical six day a week, back by chest drive, multiple sets, multiple reps, all that kind of thing. Um, I got I got to weigh about 190 pounds, always maintaining about you know sub 10% body fat. And um, it was recommended to me by somebody in the modeling agency that that I would apply to that you know I tried these uh, the fitness modeling thing. So um, you know I called him up, had a little Skype interview with him. And he said, Yeah, you know you got a great build, this that, but we're going to need you to put on some more muscle. Mm-hmm. And this kind of blew me away because I mean compared to my peers I was huge I looked great mm-hmm. and I had been trying my whole life to put on as much muscle as possible so I didn't know how I was going to go about this you know I thought what I was doing was the way to put on muscle right um and uh so I started hitting the books started doing research I did research for months on end and then I came across a guy named uh, Dr. Doug McGuff you know just through YouTube he gave this presentation mm-hmm on exercise physiology and it blew me away because it made so much sense and he went into the science behind stimulating the muscle to grow, stimulation process, the recovery process, um, you know, uh, motor unit recruitment and fatigue and all that kind of stuff and it made so much sense to me that I started implementing, which I didn't know at the time were high intensity training principles Mm -hmm. into my training. So basically what I did was I cut down the volume I increased the intensity of effort in each exercise and I cut down the frequency. So I was training about a half as I, as much as I used to. And in the span of about three to four months, I put on about 10 to 15 pounds. Wow. So the reason I was not growing was because I was overstimulating the muscle and not allowing enough time for the muscle to repair and grow. Mm -hmm. This is a, a thing. This is what, a lot of people are doing in the gym. If you are in the gym consistently and you are not seeing an improvement, and some people do this over the course of years, they will go to the gym six days a week and see nothing 
mm-hmm. in several years, but not take a step back and think that maybe there's something wrong with their training. That's what I did. I adjusted my training. My body responded very quickly. And since then, I've been instructing the style of training to hundreds of people, thousands of sessions over the past six years with tremendous results and the best part, no injuries at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of my story. So I did become a successful fitness model. I was a muscle tech sponsored athlete. I've been in every magazine on the planet. I modeled for Under Armour, Men's Health, you name it. Mm-hmm. And um, it probably wouldn't have happened unless I adopted a logical style of training, which is so. Right. So at first, were you just kind of blown away? Was it just like, you know, as you said, you kind of thought you were doing everything in your power. Was it just like a, a shock at first? Well, yeah, because the thing is, I did not understand, as many people do not understand, the physiology of muscle stimulation and growth. Mm -hmm. We are under the impression that our muscles are growing as we are training, Mm -hmm. which is untrue. We're not pumping our muscles up as we're training. What we're doing is we're creating a very deep level of fatigue, which stimulates the muscle to respond and grow stronger. Now, with that said, the deeper level of muscle fatigue, which is created through a higher intensity of muscular exertion and muscular effort, will produce a stronger response. The other side of that coin is you cannot train as long and you cannot train as frequently. Mm-hmm. So these were, you know, this, this uh, approach on exercise physiology and muscle growth has been around since as early as the 1920s. Just when um, Arnold Schwarzenegger became popular in the 70s mm-hmm. with his uh, movie Pumping Iron, he said he trained six hours a day. Right. Now, people make this uh, association fallacy that, okay, well, he's the most popular, successful bodybuilder. He must be the expert on exercise. Let's mm-hmm. follow him without taking into consideration his tremendous genetics and his steroid use. Mm-hmm. So that that is the primary reason people are training the way they are today, is because they follow self-proclaimed experts without taking into any consideration any other factors that might have been mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up next was just the steroids because it's like the thing that jumped to my mind is I know a lot of people, you know, just say the average person that's my age or just you know wanting to. Uh, start getting into lifting weights or has been lifting weights for a while they see these like bodybuilding magazines or stuff on bodybuilding.com or like see someone on instagram and it's like a lot of the times they don't realize those people are on steroids so that recovery process is so much different than the average person who's just a, a, a natural and not taking steroids that's exactly it so the argument i get and people you know people have their heads up their asses when it comes to this it's okay well a natural trainee is going to need more exercise. No, a natural trainee is going to need less exercise because their recovery ability is not enhanced so as the enhanced athletes is. So it's, it's really not even the steroids. The number one thing responsible for your response to training is genetics. Mm-hmm. And we know several of the genetics. It comes down to how much myostatin is circulating through your body, muscle belly length, certain expressions of interleukin 15 uh, muscle fiber density several there are there are several components to this that Mm -hmm. we are aware of that many people are not aware of genetics is the number one 
the most important aspect of your response to training. And with those genetics, if you throw some steroids into the mix, then you get these big, giant, impressive physiques. But even the mm-hmm. average Joe could take a, enough steroids to kill a cow. They're mm-hmm. not going to look like the people in the magazine if they do not have the genetic predispositions. This is something the fitness industry is not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Because if people, if people knew this, they wouldn't be blowing their money on supplements. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was also hoping to bring up because I remember that was one of the key points you hit in a couple of your YouTube videos too. Just the fact that genetics play such a big part. And it's like you say, it, it doesn't get brought up because it's not something sexy that you can sell. And so unfortunately, it kind of gets put on the back burner. But it took me a long time to realize this too. Like I've kind of similar to you, I've been really interested in lifting weights since I was like 15 or 16. But the people I always looked up to were either number one, probably taking you know huge amounts of steroids, or number two, they just had completely different body types than me. And I finally have come to accept that recently where it's like, I'm very long and lanky naturally. I have pretty thin ankles and wrists. And so I have come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to naturally just have like a very big and powerful physique. So it was kind of, it's kind of upsetting when you finally really come to terms with that, but it's also gratifying too, because you realize that, okay, I have a, I have a genetic maximum that I can probably get close to. But other than that, it kind of frees me up to focus on other goals. Like I've been doing yoga and stuff like that. And I'm not as um, crazy about being in the gym five or six days a week, lifting with lifting weights hard because I realize, you know, there's only so far I can go with my genetics. Yeah. That's the thing. A lot of people, you know, when it comes to several aspects of the body, they think it's under their control. It's not. Mm-hmm. Think about getting sick, for instance, you know, or you get an injury. You know, people are sick and they're like, okay, what medicine do I take so I can get better? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. The medicine helps you deal with the sickness as your body repairs and recovers itself. It's the same thing with exercise. People are trying to push the process along without realizing that it's not up to them. It's up to their body. So a Mm -hmm. lot of people reach their genetic ceiling relatively quickly. I would say within the first year of training, but then consistently spin their wheels thinking that one of these days they're going to come across some secret supplement or some secret workout routine that's going to finally put on their 20 pounds of muscle. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. When I was 15 years old, um, I had broken my collarbone. I was an orthopedic surgeon and I had to take my shirt off for the, the orthopedic to look at it. And he turns around and he looks at my father. He says, wow, your son's built like a middleweight. I had never lifted a weight in my life at that point. And mm-hmm. a lot of these professional bodybuilders or these people with these tremendous physiques are the same way. They develop very impressive physiques, even at an early age without any training. And then just with a little bit of training, their bodies blow up. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this is a genetic rarity. And that's why we find it so appealing. And that's why the fitness industry is able to sell so much crap. Yeah. Because people see beauty in something. Uh, there is value in scarcity. And big muscular physiques are so scarce that we create a lot of value and we chase it, chase it, chase it. But evolutionarily, holding a lot of muscles is disadvantageous to survival. Mm-hmm. So you're going to find that most people do not have the ability to build an excessive or huge amount of muscle. And that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah, and then the thing about that 1% of the 1% as far as genetic elites, like those are the type of guys that get slapped on a workout program or a supplement, and then you go, okay, I can attain that if I just buy this or if I just do this. But it's like it's not that simple, if only. Yeah, and that's just not the case. I mean, you know, why do you think there are so many different workout routines? It's Mm -hmm. because 
these uh, people who have great genetic predispositions to building muscle and, and maintaining a lean, lean body mass, anything will work for them. They could throw bags of rocks at the wall. They could do simple manual labor and they're going to get 80% of the way mm-hmm. there. That's why it varies so much. That's why I took, you know, and even myself, I trained however, and I built an mm-hmm. impressive physique. But then I needed to take it to the next level. I needed to understand the actual physiology behind it, the mm-hmm. genetics, applying the stimulus, recovery. And um, I don't know, for one reason or another, people don't come across this information. It, it, it may because, again, it's really not going to sell much and it's not very mm-hmm. sexy. And, you know, I only train once a week at this point And, you know, what the hell am I going to sell with that? Mm-hmm. So that's most of the reason I think it's not popular. And plus, the way I train, is I push my body very, very, very hard, much harder than any average gym goer would. And people do not like to do that. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. You get nauseous most of the time. You feel like crap the day of and the next day and maybe the following day after that. And people don't want to do that. And I think that's a lot of the reason too. high intensity training is really not taken off or become very popular. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you look at intensity then? Because I'm sure there's people out there and I've been there too. Like when you, you feel like you really had a really hard workout and you feel like you really pushed yourself and where's that barrier at where like, I feel like I'm going really hard to where it's completely maximal exertion, exertion that I'm, that I'm capable of. I'll tell you this. If you are maximally exerting and max and recruiting a max amount of motor units, your fast twitch to be motor units and fatiguing them, you will not be able to tolerate a long workout. You'll be able to tolerate 30, 45 minutes tops. If you're training without taking, you know, ridiculous breaks in between exercises for more than an hour, you are not training to that very, very high level. And you are very likely not optimally recruiting motor units um, for stimulation. So the the best way I heard it described to me was um, by uh, a guy that his name is Drew Bay. And he's, he's likely the most brilliant exercise mind, I think, on this planet. And he said, you want to train to the point, if someone were to put a gun to your head, you could not get another repetition. So think about that. I mean, most of us are not going to train to that extent because we do not have that kind of external motivation. But you want it to be so uncomfortable that you can barely tolerate it. And you want to take each exercise to that level. Now, when you take it to that level, people say, well, I can't do as much volume. Mm -hmm. And that is because volume is not the driving factor in muscle growth. It is recruit the motor units, all all available motor units in a particular muscle group, fatigue them, and move on. Because Mm -hmm. once you have fatigued the highest threshold motor units by training to muscular failure, that's all you can do. Hitting them again, based on several just dozens of studies produces Mm -hmm. almost no additional benefit that's why i personally train one set to absolute maximum muscular exertion and then move on to the next exercise Mm -hmm. so my two questions about that are uh number one how do you and what is the focal point as far as you know when you're working a specific muscle i think something that happens a lot is uh the best example maybe is like for example, the bench press, if you're trying to maximally exert your chest, well, at some point, you're going to start taking the load off your chest 
just naturally and try to transfer it somewhere else. So how do you deal with like transferring the load to other parts of the muscle? And maybe that has to do with the fact that you just train once a week in full body. And then number two, are you using a training partner and doing force reps and things of that nature too? Well, personally, I'm not using a training partner. So to answer your first question, so if I understand correctly, so, um, so are you talking about, so say you train your chest to maximum mm -hmm. effort, are, are you referring to maybe you're fatiguing your triceps too much? Yeah. That well, then you cannot do an additional triceps exercise. Not necessarily that? more, more so just like how, you know, if you're going for the one specific body part, which I don't know if that is what you're doing for sure or not, but you know, I think that it gets to a point where if you're, for example, just throw out a number like 70 to 80% uh, to your maximal exertion, you're probably going to start transferring the weight to other parts of your body. Is that part of the process? Is that, is that oh, okay? Oh yeah. Well, here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. All the muscles work together. They're mm -hmm. all connected. Every exercise you do, you are using every mm -hmm. muscle in your body. Yeah. The point of, of picking different exercises is to emphasize particular muscle mm -hmm. groups. And that's kind of counterintuitive <laughs> to what most people think, though, right? Right. You're good. So they're, they're all working to a certain degree. This is something that in the Nautilus bulletins they call the indirect effect. Every time you train a particular muscle group, every muscle in your body is going to respond to a lesser degree. Meaning mm -hmm. if you train your legs, your upper body is going to get the same overall systemic stimulation, but to a lesser <laughs> degree. The reason we choose several exercises and try to emphasize particular muscle groups is so we create enough of a direct effect on those mm -hmm. muscle groups so that they all get an adequate stimulation. I'm under the firm belief that if someone did a chest press to failure, a pull up to failure, and a squat to failure, you would get 80 to 90% of your maximal muscle development because all the muscles overlap. So for instance, when you are doing a chest press or a chest fly, there are several muscles involved, but the muscle you are emphasizing and placing the most tension on will be your chest. That doesn't mean that it's going to have a negative side effect on the other muscle groups involved. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I pick a workout for myself, I pick very basic movements that require very minimal skill because if the, if, if the stimulus is intensity of effort and you throw in a movement that requires a lot of skill, the skill is going to get in the way of performing that intensity of effort. So I choose very basic movements and then very basic planes of, of motion. So mm -hmm. a vertical press, a vertical pull, horizontal press, horizontal pull, you know, a squat, and then maybe some simple movements for the biceps, triceps, forearms, calves. And with that basic, uh, basic workout, you are going to effectively stimulate every single muscle in your body. Mm -hmm. there, so people are under the impression that if you have a lagging triceps or biceps or deltoids, that you need to throw additional movements in there to give them more work. The purpose of simple movements like that is not to give the 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 uh, muscle more work is to be able to work the muscle harder mm -hmm. so the only reason i would throw in you know a biceps or a tricep exercise is to work it even harder so you know there's there you shouldn't again another thing a lot of people do is they choose 
silly, complicated exercise. So if you think about it, you want to, if you want to fatigue your pectoral muscles, the, pe the pectoral muscles, their, their primary function is humeral adduction. So you're moving your arms in. So a chest press, which you know pushes your, your arms forward and then moves them in, such as many machines are designed that way, are going to be a way to optimally fatigue those muscles, or a chest fly. With that said, you don't need to do a chest press, a chest fly, an incline chest press, mm -hmm. an incline chest press, a dumbbell chest press. You know, you're just you're doing more than is necessary for the muscle group. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times when you do that, you're going to overstimulate the muscle group. You're not going to allow enough time to recover. And you're actually going to head in the other direction. You're, you're, you're most likely going to get weaker in atrophy. And I found mm -hmm. that out the hard way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's, just, it's just like I said, it's hard because it's so counterintuitive to what you know, the average gym goer hears or at least thinks throughout their training career. So it's such, it's such a big, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just counterintuitive, I guess. Well, think about it this way. When, when resistance training became popular, I would say it, it probably back around the 60s, 70s or so with things like football, when uh, they wanted to implement resistance training into their teams, they didn't seek out the exercise scientists. Mm -hmm. They went to the biggest, strongest people who were your power lifters or your bodybuilders, and they got the information from them. But again, a lot of the times these people respond so easily to their training that it doesn't make a difference what they do. That's why you have, especially like, you know, in, in the NCAA and NFL, you have so many people doing completely different things with completely different mm -hmm. philosophies on this. Because it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to respond either way. Yeah, well, yeah. So, it's like if you're if you're at that level enough to be a professional or semi-professional athlete, you definitely have some solid genetics in the first right. place. So, so think about it. If there was, you know, if 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 there was um, a set of principles, like say, you know, three sets of ten. If three sets of ten was the be-all, end-all of volume for training a muscle group. Mm -hmm. why isn't everybody doing three sets of 10? Why are there five by five? Why is there, you know, all sorts of um, sets and rep ranges. It's because the last few most difficult repetitions is what stimulates the mTOR pathway, upregulates protein synthesis, and turns on genes to make the muscle grow. It's the first two, three, four sets that people generally do that are not too high, a high level of effort. Mm -hmm. Very little in the way of muscular growth. It is the last few repetitions that actually stimulate it. And the thing is people have several different ways of getting to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the times, the, the previous sets and reps, it's a lot of times just wasted effort and wasted time. And I don't, you know, and I don't do them. And mm -hmm. I found... You know, I maintain around 205 pounds, around 8 to 9% body fat, and I train once a week. So if that were the case, if high volume was responsible for muscle growth, then why am I not doing high volume? And why did mm -hmm. I, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So and the principles I'm explaining have been around since the 70s, since um, the introduction of Nautilus. And, and they have been confirmed through several um, double-blind peer-reviewed research papers over the mm -hmm. past 20 years. It's, it's almost irrefutable. That's just the way it is. Yeah. People can yeah. believe whatever the hell they want to believe. <laughs> I mm -hmm. don't care. 
they yeah, want to go the, and waste their time, whatever. Right. And that's the other interesting thing is like bodybuilding and weightlifting and powerlifting has really only been around seriously for maybe 50 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. But like you said, when, when the beginning of weightlifting was maybe around the beginning of the 1900s and mm-hmm. it was, I, I think it's interesting how you kind of talked about the fact that uh, when people wanted to go somewhere for information, they, they looked anecdotally. So they looked for the people that were, that were living it, that were the bodybuilders, the power lifters. I think that we kind of brush that stuff under the rug too quickly. And like, you know, we do the, you know, the typical person might do the workout for a big chest or big biceps and think, Oh, I don't need to train. You know, I don't, I don't, I'd rather pay attention to how this Instagram model trains and not think about maybe how like, football players or professional fighters or people that have great physiques that really have functional strength trained uh, where it's that, that anecdotal evidence and it can't always be um, explained completely to the way that they think and the way that they want to train. Well, yeah, it's very bizarre. It's like, okay, so there is, there is a consensus on the physiology, which makes muscle grow. And that is, you know, recruit fatigue enough motor units in order from slow to fast twitch motor units in order to stimulate the mTOR pathway and upregulate protein synthesis and, and stimulate the muscle to grow. And the thing is, when it comes to medicine, there's there's a general physiology. You know, if 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 everybody had completely different responses or completely different physiques and everybody needed different ways to train. Mm-hmm. If everybody's body was that different, then modern medicine would not work. Mm-hmm. We all have one physiology. The human body is what the human body is. And believe it or not, different approaches to exercise do not work better for one body compared to another. It is the difference in response to the exercise. That's where people get confused. Some people respond better. Some people respond worse. But people are under the assumption that the people who don't respond very well must need a different style of training. Mm-hmm. It's just not the case. It's the fact that they are just poor respondents. And, yeah. and it's tough for people to grasp that. But, you know, it's the reality of the situation. Think about it. Like, people from Northern Europe – are not going to get the same suntan than someone from Puerto Rico would. And mm-hmm. in, in no matter what their suntan approach was, no matter what lotions they use, no matter how often they tan, they would never have the skin complexion of somebody from Puerto Rico. It's the same thing. There are genetic predispositions to responses to the sunlight. There are genetic predispos- predispositions and responses to training. And that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Um, have you heard of, have you heard of Mike Mentor, Dorian Yates? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's that's. I, whenever I think of high intensity training, I always think of Yates because he's got he's just like the grandfather of it, basically in my eyes, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he he actually ended up. He probably could have got away with a lot less, but mm-hmm. he was still only training. You know, I think like five exercises three mm-hmm. days a week to total failure. He would do like a warm up set and train to failure, but you know, he learned, he learned these principles from Mike Menser, who learned them from Arthur Jones. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, and the fact of the matter is bodybuilders may not adopt this style of training because bodybuilders like to be in the gym. Yeah. And if there's a reason for them to be in the gym more often, they're going to say, yeah. but for the average person who has normal things to do with their life, why spend any more time in the gym than you need to? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the, and the thing about Yates is like at the time, I don't think that anyone had ever achieved as much muscle mass as he was able to. Like he was just a monster, and it's like you kind of see him now, like his pictures from when he was competing, and it's like, yeah, he looks good, but you can see a lot of guys like that now just because there's been so many developments in like steroid cycles and stuff like that. But at the time, he was just so goddamn big, and it was just yeah. like unbelievable. Yeah, that, and I think it's you know it, it's got a lot to do with. I would say he he was definitely training harder than anybody was. Mm-hmm. Like if you oh, would look those, at the if you look at those videos, yeah, oh, he's just like his workouts were brutal, and he understood that intensity of effort was what was responsible for mm-hmm. muscle growth. People like um, Sean Ray, you know, if you ever watched their training, or other people from that era, or uh, Flex Lewis. You know, you watch their training, they're kind of sitting around looking at the wall, mm-hmm. doing a set here, doing a set there. Dorian Yates was down there in a in a basement. In the dungeon, they called it. A business, crushing mm-hmm. himself. And uh, that was probably primarily the difference. Yeah, drugs had something to do with it. But again, I don't think it's – it, well, I think it may have been the, um, the, evol- the um, evolution of the understanding of the drugs. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were, like, newer or better drugs or whatever, yeah. but – Again, these guys, you got to remember, are very likely – there was another bodybuilder. I think it was Ben Pakulski described this. The best bodybuilders aren't necessarily taking the most drugs. They're generally the most sensitive to the drugs, again, mm-hmm. due to genetic sense. predisposition. So there's another genetic component to the drugs as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and here's the thing. You know, think about how many bodybuilders there are trying to get the big succeed. Think about how many fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's like – you got, you got to remember, you know, some people are going to make it, some people are not, but we can't place such an importance on their workout regimen for mm-hmm. why they made it and completely ignore all the other factors such as, I don't know, luck, being in the right mm-hmm. place at the right time, you know, that sort of thing. So, and this is what's confusing a lot of people in the fitness industry, unfortunately. Yeah. And like, just <laughs> kind of random here, but like back to the, the, whole like 80s 90s 70s bodybuilding physiques it's like i would choose those over the modern physiques in bodybuilding 10 out of 10 times because it's like they were just so much more aesthetic and they had that really really nice v taper whereas now you mean you probably know more about this than me but they they get the like the bubble gut because they're on so many different drugs and stuff like that yeah and they're just think- trying to reach just like crazy levels of mass that are just not natural yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, and bodybuilding evolves that way. Um, personally, I'm not a huge fan of bodybuilding. I think it's stupid. Mm. I think it's the most silly way to waste your friggin' time to spend hours a day in the gym. And, 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 then, and then bodybuilders, like, pat themselves on the back for dieting and eating mm. less. So they pat themselves on the back for not being a glutton. Meanwhile, there's like 3 billion people in the world starving to death. Mm. I think bodybuilding is stupid. But with that said, bodybuilding has evolved. So you can look at like, you know, men's physique. Men's physique started at, you know, just having a good beach body. Now mm-hmm. it's like 230 pound monsters. And that's what bodybuilding did back in the day. It used to be you had a body that people wanted. Now it is get as big as friggin' possible. And I think insulin, from what I understand, I think the insulin is what is, is driving those really. And, and I think so too. Yeah. yeah. I've heard, I've heard insulin is the big there yeah it's just like you know you got these people it's just weird you know people are obsessed with getting as big as possible i don't Mm -hmm. i I don't understand why i think it makes more sense to 
you know, have a nice looking physique, mm-hmm. but that's where bodybuilding turned into. And I think that's where it lost a lot of his popularity too. Yeah. They look like, they look like shit. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, I think the people that have that personality too, not all of them, but a lot of them can tend to be just because of the nature very vain. And so yeah. it kind of plays into the whole thing as well. I think they're incredibly insecure and they mm-hmm. think that having a huge amount of muscle is going to fill whatever void that, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. I mean, it's not, <clears throat> it's not the worst habit, you know, in the world or the worst hobby, but you know, I don't associate any valor with bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. You aren't, you know, you're not this, you're not making any sacrifice. What you're doing is you're spending your time stupidly is what mm-hmm. you're doing. So you're going to end up 50 years old, broke with no friends and no family. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. You're going to have 19 inch biceps. Congrats. It's mm-hmm. just dumb. It's, and the other you know, thing, I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking uh, a little bit ago when you were talking about the fact that like, it's like a correlation versus causation where you're saying that these people are, are in the gym, these bodybuilders, like a lot of hours a week, like 12 plus hours a week, but it's not necessarily that that's necessary. It's just what they like to do. It's where they like to be, you know, that's where their friends are and stuff like that. So it's not necessarily because they're in the gym all this time, they get these great physiques. It's more they're just that the gym is the place where they like to be and they enjoy being. So it's not that's, like, that's another huge problem too. I mean, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's, you know, you got these people, so they respond favorably to training. They're going to end up wanting to do something. They're going to want to do more of something that they're good at and that makes mm-hmm. them feel good because they're good at it. So what you've got is people spending more time in the gym and then someone asks them, you know, they associate their physique with being some kind of expert in exercise science they ask them, oh, what do you do? And they say, mm-hmm. well, I spend two and a half, three hours a day doing this, this, and this. And then people assume that that's what you're supposed to do, not realizing that this particular individual just likes being in the gym. And I would say about 90% of the time spent there is completely wasted time and wasted mm-hmm. effort. And, um, you know, most people, and that's, and that's unfortunate because so many people could be exercising and improving themselves, mm-hmm. but they're under the impression you need to spend 12 to 15 hours a week in the gym. Most people, I mean, most people could do that, but they won't. Yeah. So based on the exercise science, they found that as little as six minutes of extreme heavy, intense pedaling on a, on a, on a like a Wingate bike mm-hmm. gets you most of the cardiovascular and metabolic benefits of exercise. Six mm-hmm. minutes. Um, and, but a lot of people just don't know that. Yeah. But again, if you want if you want to build muscular strength and size, which should be the foundation of any exercise program, because muscular strength is the precursor for functional health and functional ability, mm-hmm. then you're going to want to train with weights. But again, now a lot of people have this negative connotation that, especially women, oh, if I train with weights, I'm going to get big and bulky. Right. No, not going to happen. Most men aren't. So why would a woman? So mm-hmm. luckily things are shifting. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I have a ton of female clients. They're starting to understand. And I'll tell you right now, out of, you know, the, Jesus, 50 or so female clients I have, none of them got big and bulky, mm-hmm. but they did drastically improve their body composition and, yeah. and functional ability. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I mostly wish people realized was that this is kind of a, a different topic, but I think people would notice such a boost in their mood and their energy levels. And just like exercise makes a lot of different parts of your life improve. It, it's not just about, it's not just about the body composition and the physique and the exercise. Like it's good for your, for your mental health and mental clarity as well. 
Well, yeah, it does because, I mean, your body doesn't know the difference between exercise and, you know, running away from a grizzly bear. Basically, mm. your body interprets it as something in the environment plays such a heavy demand on its ability to survive that it must adapt to that demand in order to survive. So not only are you going to adapt physically, you have to adapt cognitively as well in order mm -hmm. to be able to problem solve to survive. And um, the, uh, the neurochemical side of that, you know, the dopamine release and upregulation and serotonin, um, that's got huge mental, mental health effects as well. I mean, I'm actually in the process of putting a studio of mine in a uh, behavioral health building as oh, part cool. of their regimen for, you know, they have meditation, they have uh, yoga, mm -hmm. all these different things for people with depression and anxiety. And I'm going to put a studio in there to add the exercise component, to add mm -hmm. a safe, effective, time-efficient way to get that part of their mental health regiment as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, re there's really no reason not to exercise. And, you mm -hmm. know, for anybody who isn't exercising, um, you know, they're missing out tremendously. Mm -hmm. Something I've heard a lot of times is that, like, a lot of times when people will go into, like, a counselor or therapist or psychologist or whatever it is and kind of talk about the issues they're having as far as things like you talk about, anxiety, depression, a lot of times the first thing they'll say or the first thing they'll recommend is just exercise because that gets yeah. you out of your head. It gets you into your body and it just changes. It just, like you said, those, those chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, it changes the way you think and it changes the way that you process information. And it gives you, it gives you some kind of purpose. You know, if mm -hmm. you, if you adopt some kind of workout regimen, now you've got something to do. You've got a goal. You've got something to aim for. I feel like a lot of people lack that and that's the that's the cause of their depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like not even the, the, the neurochemistry behind it, but you know, getting out and doing something. Mm -hmm. Also, I believe people's diets are, are hugely responsible for depression and anxiety mm -hmm. because you know, huge amounts of refined carbohydrates are just bad for your body. And I think, I think they're also very bad for, I think they suppress, um, particular neurotransmitters as well i mean they, mm -hmm. they must there's got to be a connection between um you know we are one of the most depressed anxiety cultures in the, in the world and we're also the fattest mm -hmm. there's got to be some kind of connection there yeah that was I, I wanted to bring something else up talking about diet this is kind of not exactly related to what we're talking about when you talk about correlation and causation um i was talking to someone just the other day about the fact that like red meat and saturated fat got such a bad rap um, for the longest time and essentially there there's uh, a concept out there that like yes these people that they were studying that were eating large amounts of saturated fat and meat and stuff like that they they did have more poor health outcomes than people who didn't but on the along lines of that correlation causation they these were also the people that were more likely to smoke cigarettes and drink heavily and you know have other things going on in their life maybe such as poor relationships poor sleep and stuff like that. And so I think that that's kind of like we're talking about, you have to look at the full scope of things and not just look at, I was reminded of this when we were talking about the, like the fact that these bodybuilders in the gym all the time, what's well, not always this equals this, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into the diet and exercise and any component of life for that matter. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a critical thinking error people make. I mean, our brains are designed to find patterns and mm -hmm. it, you know, it's, it's not anybody's fault, but a lot of people either don't have um, the desire or the ability to sit back and critically think about something and logically 
take a logical approach to it. Um, and, you know, diet was one of them and um, exercise is certainly another. And I think, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, fat is bad thing. I mean, yeah, if you're eating a diet high in fat, you're going to get a lot of calories. You might gain weight, but you know, I've heard conspiracies that like, you know, the sugar industry pushed, you know, fat is bad, sugar is good. Mm-hmm. Yada, yada, yada. And what they ended up doing is just making billions of people fat and kill them. But you know, a lot of people, a lot of people know the correct diet approach now. It's just now we've got to, we've got to make a shift and get them to understand proper exercise. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we know now that more intense exercise is more effective, right? You've got high intensity interval training coming out now and boot camps and spin classes and all this. We know that if you push the body harder, it's going to respond better. Now, how do we do that safely? Mm-hmm. You can do it extremely safely with resistance training if you do it properly. If you do slow controlled movements, uh, movements that are congruent to joint function and um, not do it too often. And, mm-hmm. and personally, that's what I do myself. And that's what I instruct to, you know, over a hundred people a week. Yeah. And when you talk about injuries and, and the intensity of exercise, it's like people that, you know, say like a 50 year old man or woman who goes and does CrossFit, that's, that's a good way to get injured because your body's not used to doing stuff like that. You have to, you have to ease into it, you know? Yeah. Again, it's the correlation does not equal causation thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got the CrossFit games and you see all these great bodies. Yeah, you're you're like, think, wow. Oh my God, CrossFit produces this great mm-hmm. body. No, man. Freaks are good at CrossFit. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, Susie, age 55, mother of three, is, is not an athlete, Have never has been an athlete, does not have strong muscles, therefore does not have strong bone uh, joints, does not have strong bones. You know, of course she's going to get hurt doing CrossFit. You know, the, the, what people's approach should be low impact, low force. Mm-hmm. And you can achieve that with resistance. I mean, you want an aggressive... You want to aggressively fatigue your muscles. You can do it a million ways. You can jump. You can flip tires. You can hit tires with hammers, which is a a very dumb way of creating (laughs) an aggressive level of muscle fatigue. Or you can follow a particular uh, joint function, load it, and aggressively recruit fatigue the muscle. You're going to get the Mm -hmm. same outcome with low impact, low force, and almost zero chance of injury. Mm-hmm. I just think many people are unaware of this. Yeah, so back to something we sort of started to touch on. How do you how do you approach diet as it fits into all this? And how big is that a part of your recovery as far as do, do you more uh, fat in your diet or carbs? Are you are you a follower of like the one gram of protein for pound of body weight? How do you look at all that sort of stuff? Well, one gram of protein per pound of body weight can get a little excessive. You know, if yeah. I'm if I'm ranging between two hundred five and two hundred ten pounds, that is be a such lot. overkill. Overkill. Mm. Um, diet wise, what I do is focus on protein first, and then fill in the rest of the calories with fat or um, you know low glycemic carbs. Here's the mm. thing: carbs are not bad. But most people with their poor habits and years of eating, you know, high glycemic refined carbohydrates, they don't need and they don't respond well to carbs. Someone who already Mm -hmm. has a lean physique and is very insulin sensitive can have carbs in their diet. Therefore, I particularly do have carbs in my diet. But the number one thing I focus on is getting adequate protein and then filling in the rest of the calories through carbs and fat. If I were to recommend somebody, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to lose weight, I likely would not recommend carbs in their diet mm-hmm. because 
you know, simply eliminating the carbs is going to eliminate a significant amount of calories. Right. Yeah. So explain, sorry, on a novice level, explain the difference between like a low GI, which is a glycemic index versus high. So a low glycemic um, carbohydrate is, is going to absorb into your bloodstream more slowly and um, is not going to cause a very large insulin spike. So mm-hmm. insulin is a hormone which, you know, it, it can help with muscle growth, but it's also responsible for most people in driving fat storage. Insulin is also a trump hormone. So if it's elevated in high amounts of the bloodstream chronically, um, it is going to block lipoprotein lipase, hormone-sensitive lipase, testosterone, mm-hmm. all these other hormones responsible for achieving a good body composition. So if you if you know if body composition is your goal for most people, not freaks like myself, but most people, you're going to want to choose if you want uh, carbohydrates, low glycemic carbohydrates. A high glycemic carbohydrate is going to be something like uh, you know chips, cookies, that kind of stuff is going to drive insulin through the roof and you're going to be more likely to store fat. So mm-hmm. um, I would recommend most people, you know, choose like vegetables or boiled sweet potatoes or pretty much when it comes to diet, I tell people eat what you would find in the woods. Okay. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our metabolism evolved over the course of 2 million years to eat what's in the woods. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find bread in the woods. You're very you're not going to find grain in the woods, probably not rice. So a diet that is going to be high in animal protein and a little bit of fruit and vegetables is going to allow you to is going to develop the best phenotypic expression of your body, which mm-hmm. should be lean. Should be mm-hmm. lean for the most part. It should be around you know twenty to twenty five percent body fat for women, ten to fifteen body fat percentage for men. Yeah. Yeah. That's similar to what I tell people about diet when they ask. It's like on the most base level, I want to eat foods that are as close to what they look like in their natural form. So, exactly. you know what I mean? Like a steak is very close to what it looks like in its natural form. A, uh, I don't know, like a Wendy's hamburger or like Wendy's chicken nuggets maybe is a better example. Like that's not, yeah. I mean, it's chicken in some form maybe, but it's not anywhere close to what the chicken looked like initially. Exactly right. I, I completely agree with that. And you know, the problem is people do not like to cook. They'll they'll mm. tell you they don't have the time. And then I ask them what their favorite Netflix TV show is. And if they have an answer, then that mm. means they have the time. And they've watched eight series in the past two months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, if people would simply cook, they'd be eliminating a huge amount of calories and they would be left with food options that will help them express the best body composition that their genetics allow. But again, a lot of people won't, can't do that. They're all looking for the magic pill. You know, fasting became popular. Um, now fasting is okay, but you're going to get the same effects if you just eat, you know, a decent diet. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact of the matter is there's no secret. There's no trick. There's no supplement. There's no secret exercise routine. It is eat well, exercise hard, sleep well, and recover. That's, that's the recipe. It's very simple. I was just going to say, I also wanted to bring up sleep. Uh, How important is that to you? And how do you make sure you're getting enough? And in addition, what is enough to you? So a lot of people, um, it varies. The older you get, the less you need, it seems. Um, I think sleep is tremendously important, especially if you're training hard. Most of the recovery process is happening when you're in uh, 
the deepest state of REM sleep. Mm -hmm. If you are not sleeping well, you are not going to get the most out of your workout. Your body composition is going to suffer. Your mood's going to suffer. Everything is going to suffer. Personally, I will absolutely make sure I get bare minimum eight hours. I would, I would give up careers to get eight hours because again, your long-term productivity is going to go down if you're not getting enough sleep. You know, we live in a society where people associate a certain amount of valor or prestige with not mm -hmm. sleeping much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're true. also digging your early grave. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sleep is tremendously important. And I recommend most people kick around the seven to nine hour range. Mm -hmm. You know, you got a lot of people who are in the habit of getting up very, very early at four or five in the morning and mm -hmm. going for a run. Listen, if you're going to do any sort of cardio activity, do not sacrifice anything for it because mm -hmm. it's, effectiveness is so minimal mm -hmm. that it's barely worth your time. So, you know, for instance, getting up early to go for a run, you're, you're going to be more likely to improve your body composition, getting an extra hour or two of sleep than that mm -hmm. run is going. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all in all, I think, you know, sleep is tremendously important and usually neglected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've become so much more focused on sleep in the past year. I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, Dr. Matthew Walker, who talks a lot about sleep. Yeah, like he, I did. Yeah, yeah, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and seriously, that was like one of the most impactful podcasts I've listened to in so long because I really took away the things he said, and like the two things that stuck out to me the most were like he really approached talking about sleep from like an evolutionary evolutionary perspective, and he's like, "Hey, look, we we evolved to store body fat if if food was scarce." But he's like, "We we didn't evolve a way to essentially store sleep if sleep is scarce. Like we need consistent sleep every night." And something yeah. I try to tell people and try to implement in my own life is like, you can't operate on debit on, on debt and credit. As far as your sleep goes, you got to hit consistent uh, numbers over time and try to get, like you said, preferably eight hours of sleep or more. And uh, what was the other thing he really, he really said, I guess that was just the main thing right there is just that it's, it's not something that, Oh, I slept six hours average during the week, but the weekends I'm going to sleep nine and make up for it. No, unfortunately it doesn't no, work, it's not work like that. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he also said something like, um, you know, think about how vulnerable we are. When oh, we're that's sleeping. what I, That's what I was also thinking about earlier. Yeah. Right. If we, if it is, if it, it must be so damn important mm -hmm. that we're going to put ourselves in a position to easily be killed. Mm-hmm. That's how important it is. And we, if we have not evolved a way out of doing that and putting our life at risk over millions and millions, billions of years for most mm -hmm. animals, then it must be pretty damn important. Mm -hmm. That was a big yeah. takeaway I got from that interview as well. Something else here that's kind of funny, going back to like that correlation causation. <laughs> I, remember, I remember I saw this like funny stat one time and I, I found it here. It was like apparently the number of people who drown in a pool corresponds with the number of films that Nicolas Cage appears in. So that shows you like just one of those funny <laughs> yeah. things where correlation doesn't always equal causation. It can. Just oh yeah. It's it funny. I saw, I saw, Oh my God. You know, when people come out with statistics, people, I think they develop statistics in order to spark some kind of emotional mm -hmm. response. Like I came across something yesterday or two days ago that pissed me off so much. It said 46 dogs died after being groomed at PetSmart over the past decade. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Think about how irrelevant and dumb of a statistic that is. Mm -hmm. 46 out of what? 500 million yeah. that were groomed? And, and, you know, and, and then you have the comments like, 
that's so sad. I'm not shopping there anymore. You know, these statistics, again, and and especially like with exercise and diet and stuff too, um, you know, people look at these statistics and they attribute some sort of relevancy to them and and their relevance to them. And there really isn't, um, you know, it's unfortunate. The internet, the internet, it's kind of backfiring in that Mm -hmm. case. It's a great source of information if you use it, you know, logically and critically. Yeah, and yeah, but, use uh, your critical thinking and don't just don't believe everything you see. Well, that's a lot of things too. You know, people scrolling through bodybuilding.com, Instagram, Facebook. You know, I see this thing pop up on my Facebook all the time. And it's like, you know, for for strength, four to six reps for weight loss, ten to twenty. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what the fuck are you talking about? This guy mm-hmm. no, rep range has nothing to do with your response to training. But, you know, there are millions of people who will follow that and believe it. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone's confused, man. And that's why I'm able to develop a good physique training once a week. And most people are spinning their wheels at six or seven times a week. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I just had a couple more questions. The one, <laughs> a, couple, a couple things I wanted to make sure that we got to was um, I'm curious why uh, machines are such an emphasis for you. Uh, in most of your videos, you're in machines. And you've talked today about using machines. Why is that? such a big part of your workouts well here's the thing the goal is to recruit and aggressively fatigue a targeted muscle group under a um it's congruent joint function okay so dumbbells are fine barbells are fine a machine is just an improved barbell and dumbbell basically it takes out the inadequacies a good machine of a barbell and a dumbbell. For instance, if you're doing a bent over row, the ability of your muscle to produce force throughout a particular range of movement changes. When your elbows are fully extended, it does not produce as much muscular or contractile force as mm-hmm. about mid-range position. Mid-range position will produce the most contractile force on, a, for, for instance, a bent over row, and then it will drop off again as the bar gets closer to your chest. It's a curve to how much um, contractile force a given muscle group can produce within a range of motion. That leaves an inadequacy in a barbell. Machines, properly designed machines, particularly Nautilus machines, are fitted with something called a cam. So this machine changes the amount of resistance congruent to the changes in strength throughout a particular range of motion. So what you're going to get is a deeper level of muscle fatigue. So say, for instance, you're training to failure on a bent over row. You're often going to fail right at the bottom where there's a huge amount of resistance and the amount of overlap between actinomycin is very minimal and you can't produce a lot of force. Mm-hmm. On a Nautilus machine, you are going to reach muscular failure at the position where your muscles are producing the most force. That means you're going to get a higher level of motor unit recruitment, a higher amount of uh, damage and microtrauma within the actinomycin filaments, and a better stimulus for growth. Not that there's anything wrong with dumbbells. It's that properly designed machines are slightly more effective in, in just for that reason alone. Another reason is a lot of dumbbell exercises require skill. Um, a lot of, you know, and if, if muscular exertion and um, intensity of effort is what drives 
muscle growth and improvements from exercise, mm -hmm. then you'll want to choose an exercise which requires very minimal skill. A machine almost completely takes skill and form out of the equation so you can focus on the driving factor which causes your body to respond, which is intensity of effort. So mm -hmm. for instance, bench press, bench press requires skill. Chest press requires no skill. So you can get right to the point which is driving fatigue in these muscles without having to learn the proper technique or proper range of motion um, of an Olympic lift like that. Yeah. So preferably, you know, I, I like machines, um, but when it comes to, you know, like training legs, I, I prefer a squat, mm -hmm. a leg press generally. Um, you know, think about like doing a dumbbell curl. Like for instance, if you could see me standing up, mm -hmm. you know, if your elbow's in the fully extended position, your biceps cannot produce much muscular force mm -hmm. or much tractile force. You move towards the middle. This is where your biceps is generally the strongest. Up to the top, it drops off again. So it's a curve. If you put a dumbbell in your hand, due to gravity, you're producing very little resistance in the fully extended position. Mm -hmm. The most resistance at 90 degrees where your biceps is the strongest, and then it drops off again. So believe it or not, for training your biceps, a dumbbell is a perfect tool because mm -hmm. gravity and the movement alone allows it to perfectly match the, the strength curve of right. the joint function so for you know exercises like that i'm going to choose a dumbbell there's no need for a machine for an exercise like that but you know for instance like um you're training the last you're training the chest um some machines may be a better option for most people but again it, none of that's going to make a huge difference in the long run it really mm -hmm. isn't um, machines are a little safer they're a little more effective but again it's got to be the right machine if you're in a gym and you're using light fitness or that matrix garbage, you're better off using a dumbbell because that stuff mm -hmm. is so terrible. Um, but again, I have in my studios the best machines money could buy. So hell yeah, I'm going to use them. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably also important or more relevant for you to use machines with your clients because it sounds like a lot of them are more close to middle age. And so right. they probably, like you, like you talked about skill, they don't really have that, that skill that they've practiced over time. Right. So like you could spend a couple of weeks trying to teach them how to do a proper squat or how to, mm -hmm. do a, you know, I've had clients, you know, some of them, most of them are so inathletic that, you know, they, they can't even perform a certain bar, uh, a mm -hmm. simple barbell curl. So rather than waste time trying to teach them that, I'd rather put them on a machine and get to the point and get them fatiguing their muscles without having to constantly watch, you know, if they're bending their knees properly or prevent them from swinging or this or that, it just, it makes um, training people less efficient if you're using dumbbells mm -hmm. most of the time. But I will throw them in there for some people who can handle them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, and it's, it's funny that you talked about the uh, training the, uh, the lats too, because I think that's, that's something that's underrated too. And it makes me think of Dorian Yates again. You would always see him in those videos doing the, uh, what do you call the machine? The overhead? That's the Nautilus pullover. Now that, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't personally have one of those mm -hmm. machines, but there's a YMCA down the street from where I live that has one. I hold the membership there just to use yeah. it. It is that effective of a machine because mm -hmm. a lot of the times your biceps and forearms and grip are going to fatigue out before you've gotten mm -hmm. a very deep stimulation of your latissimus dorsi muscle. And that machine allows you to fatigue the lats far deeper mm -hmm. than you could with a pull down. And if you've ever used one, it's insane mm -hmm. how you feel when you're done with that thing. Mm -hmm. I feel and like whenever I picture Dorian Yates, I picture him like in that machine. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, just killing it. And then, you know, if you got a training partner to do force mm-hmm. reps or negatives, you know, that thing is that thing is crazy. Um, I exclusively lately train my lats on that thing. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, after 10 years of training, is there going to be a significant lat development between a pull down and a pullover? Nope. No. It's probably going to be unnoticeable for most people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wouldn't and- place too, too much emphasis on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lift I lift weights with some guys that have been doing it for a long time. And something that they've kind of showed me is like, the, I, I never really did four reps before. And they kind of showed me how sometimes they'll help each other through the sticking point. And I feel like that's so valuable. I never, I've never felt as fatigued and, and had as an intense of a, of a stimulus as getting getting those forced reps and having someone help you through that sticking point. Yeah. And that's another problem with um, inadequate resistance curves on particular mm-hmm. exercises that are not congruent with the strength curve of a muscle group is you're going to have sticking points. You know, if mm-hmm. you have a properly, properly designed machine, you're not going to have a sticking point to have to get through. So you can train your muscles to failure on your own without having mm-hmm. the assistance of a partner. And, you know, although like, you know, doing negatives or force reps or drop sets, you know, it makes the exercise or the set harder and more fatiguing on your muscles. Research has shown that these set they're called set extenders mm-hmm. they actually don't produce any additional benefit so it's it's really preference like i like to do drop sets because i like beating the shit out of myself mm-hmm. but, and you know at the end of the day it doesn't even produce any benefit right. it, it would likely with a uh, uh barbell or dumbbell exercise um but if you're using a properly designed machine set extenders aren't going to make a huge difference mm-hmm. but if you've yeah, got a training goes- partner that can kick your ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say go for it. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. Like, I mean, for me, it's just a fun thing to like, I guess, just stress my body more than I usually would. It's I feel like it's a good mental boost too when you do something hard like that. It's mm-hmm. just I like hard exercise for the mental benefits, like I mentioned earlier. Like that's that's a huge part of it for me. It's just a good way to stretch yourself. Yeah, and I feel like the developing that kind of pain tolerance or that kind of discomfort tolerance that may carry over to other things in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got some some clients who I don't think have done a hard thing in their entire life, mm-hmm. and then when their muscles start to burn, they want to give up. And uh, just think about how that may carry over in other aspects of life. Right. Like if, Absolutely, if you can push yourself through an awful workout. I mean, next time you stub your toe, it's not going to feel like anything. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> so, or like at their right. job too. Like I, I bet you some people you know, they see, Oh, I'm, I'm performing better at my job. I, I find it easier to stick with tasks. I find it easier to do yeah. things I want to do. Challenging yourself. I mean, you challenge yourself in any aspect of life. I think exercise is a great way to start pushing your body, mm-hmm. but you know, think about the downturn, the downstream effects of that. You challenge yourself in the gym, you're going to be more confident and more likely to challenge yourself in other aspects mm-hmm. of life. So, I mean, there's, there's so many benefits to just getting in there and exercising. It's just, I just wish people would do it more safely, more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of my mission. You know, I don't spend a whole lot of time on YouTube because I just, I just hate doing it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, you know, I like doing podcasts in order to get this information out there um, to, to let people know there, there is a safe, time efficient, effective mm-hmm. way to train your muscles. And there really shouldn't be any excuse for you not to. Believe it or not, I train someone who has, MS in a wheelchair mm-hmm. there, you know, there's no reason not to exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing, the reason I love fitness podcasts and the reason I do it myself is because like, there's no, for the most part, there's no one like controlling the content. So like, you know, if I was sponsored right. by some big name supplement or something like that, like 
For example, we taught, we've mentioned bodybuilding.com a few times. I think they have good intentions and I think they try to relay good information, but at the end of the day, they're always thinking about how to sell more supplements. So that's going to kind of factor right. into like the information they, they give out there. You're not going to see a bodybuilding.com article that says, you know, you can get extremely ripped without taking a single supplement, which is what people need to hear. Yeah, that's what I say. I mean, the, the supplements do very little, but I mean, that's, that's the problem with magazines. Believe it or not, uh, uh, bodybuilding magazines, they're not even categorized as magazines. They're categorized mm -hmm. as catalogs for selling things. That makes sense. They though. put, they put the articles in there to give you a reason to pick them up. So you will, uh, so you will see their supplements that they're mm -hmm. trying to sell. Bodybuilding is no different. You know, bodybuilding.com, even YouTube fitness magazines, they should not be the go-to source for exercise information because a lot of the times they're the same damn articles republished over the mm -hmm. years just for content to expose you to the supplements. That's all they mm -hmm. are. And a lot of the times, you know, uh, the bodybuilders who supposedly write them don't even write them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's really the worst source of information. Unfortunately, it's tough to come by, um, credible people, incredible information. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to go to PubMed and dig through the research. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I hope to be that medium for people to yeah. you know, kind of get, get the information to them without them having to do too much work. Cause yeah. people aren't going to do it. <laughs> who else, uh, who else do you like to follow or kind of look up to or look to for information yourself? I'd like to link to some of those people. Like I actually, I already have in my uh, Google uh, that Doug McGuff and Drew Bay. Yep. Anybody Dr. else? Doug like? McGuff, Drew Bay. Ellington, Dr. Ellington Darden. Um, let's see who else is out there. I mean, they would probably be my go-tos. There, there are some mm -hmm. real, real old. Oh, uh, Dr. Keith Barr, B-A-A-R. Um, he actually just published a study on weightlifting quickly versus weightlifting slowly. And what he found mm -hmm. was that if you lift weights quickly, your connective tissue is actually going to become more rigid and more stiff and more likely to fail under mm -hmm. load. And if you slow your movements down with a more slow controlled movement, you're going to create more plasticity within your connective tissue, which are going to be less likely to fail when you abruptly load them. So mm -hmm. for athletes, they should be training more slowly. Of course, they're doing the exact freaking opposite. Mm -hmm. when you, do. Um, you know, those are the, those are the, a couple of great people to start with. Um, even like going back and reading the Mike Menser, articles mm -hmm. um what was his what was his, like one of his first publications called heavy duty heavy duty yeah that yeah. was his version of, of high intensity training we've learned a lot more since mm -hmm. since then he was he was pretty he was you know ahead of his people, time at least he was way ahead of his time and um you know arthur jones the founder of nautilus wrote the nautilus bulletins one two and three and if a fitness enthusiast sat down and read that, their head would explode mm -hmm. with knowledge. He was a hundred years ahead of his time, this guy. The way he explains things and human physiology, he was, he was a genius. Um, I think if people really wanted to dig deep and really understand how exercise works, start with Arthur Jones and then build from there. Doug McGuff, mm -hmm. they'll get into the more you know, uh, the physiology behind it. Drew Bay is terrific at explaining it in layman's terms. He's got a, um, a Facebook page called the hit list. And, mm -hmm. um, he, he does a video or two every single day explaining very in-depth intricacies about exercise physiology. And it's phenomenal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's like we've we've mentioned uh, like the like the typical Instagram model that everyone can picture in their head, but it's like unfortunately, just the fact that you have huge arms and a big chest and a ripped six pack doesn't you know make you extremely knowledgeable. But the thing is, like the people that are PhDs or you know have have studied, done research, and have creditations, they're not taking off their shirt and, and flexing on Instagram, but they're the ones with the, with the most high quality information. Exactly. A couple individuals, um, James Steele, PhD out of the UK and James Fisher out of the UK are consistently doing studies on exercise physiology, exercise mm-hmm. science. But if you look at them, they're, they're, you know, relatively thin yeah. and people don't want to take their advice because they don't look like Dorian Yates or, mm-hmm whatever Instagram assholes out there now, mm-hmm. but they know so much about exercise. It's unfathomable. Mm-hmm. So if people would start reading or, 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 you know, following them, they'd have a much more logical approach to exercise. But again, they're not putting themselves out there. They're writing research papers and publishing them on PubMed. They're not, you know, in magazines. So the exposure is low. Unfortunately, the most brilliant minds in exercise have low exposure. Mm-hmm. And um, to those people who come across them, you know, they're going to be blessed because they're going to be way ahead of the game. Right, right. So the last thing I wanted to make sure we touched on in relation to exercise, what uh, are your tempos like? Do you have a certain cadence that you really like? I mean, obviously, you're you're not going in there and just, you know, you just mentioned how the, the detriment of those really quick reps. Uh, right. How do you focus on tempo? Well, here's the thing. If the, the purpose of an exercise is to place tension – on a particular muscle group in order to cause sequential motor motor unit recruitment and fatigue. So if that's the purpose, it would make more sense to move slowly and keep the tension on the muscle. Moving quickly is going to recruit momentum. It's going to use gravity, which your body wants to do because your body wants to conserve energy. It's going to try to relieve the muscle of tension. Mm -hmm. So moving more slowly, not only is going to be more effective at, continuously loading the muscle and causing a continuous um, motor unit recruitment and fatigue, it's also going to make it almost impossible to get hurt, which should be uh, the number one concern for most people is is reducing the chance of injury. So the particular tempo I like varies from exercise to exercise. I like about a three to six second concentric and maybe about a four to six second negative. I like to slow down the negative. So, you know, if, as long as you are reducing momentum as much as you can, the cadence, I would say, let your body express the cadence organically. Towards the end of the exercise, when it comes, becomes difficult, your body is going to try to move quicker because it's becoming fatigued. It wants to conserve energy. It wants to produce momentum to help you lift the weight. Mm-hmm. That's when people really need to focus on moving slowly. It is okay for your last couple of repetitions to be extremely slow. So the last, like, say, for instance, I'm doing a barbell curl. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they might start like this, and they may end like this. Yeah. I'm pulling and squeezing as hard as I can, and only to the point where I know there isn't a damn chance in hell that that weight is moving, that's when I discontinue mm-hmm. the exercise. But if you are optimally and continuously loading the muscle – it, it almost needs to be slow. And there's going to be a ton of other benefit with that. You're going to get a deeper level of muscle fatigue. Your connective t- tissue is going to become more plastic. It's going to respond better. And you cannot get hurt. I've supervised over 10,000 sessions 
with zero injuries. And that should be a huge concern for most people. So mm -hmm. uh, that's my typical rep cadence. And um, it's also easier to, uh, to go to muscle failure if you're moving a little more slowly too. Because mm -hmm. your body's going to try to avoid muscle failure by moving right. So I would say three to six seconds on the, on the positive and about, you know, a little bit slower on the negative. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Jay, I think we hit a ton of important stuff today. I think there was a lot of useful information here. So I hope that everyone enjoys it. Do you want to uh, end with any closing thoughts? Let people know where they can find you if, if they want to reach out. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm working on building up my, uh, my YouTube channel. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I train a zillion people a week. I, I currently own two personal training studios, so I don't have all that much time, but mm -hmm. uh, the YouTube channel is Jay Vincent first name, middle name. Um, my Instagram is J Vincent, J double underscore Vincent. Um, I'm not really on that too much because mm -hmm. I'm so dissatisfied with how saturated the fitness industry right. is there that I barely use it. And um, biofitny.com is my website. I got some blog posts up there. And um, yeah, as long as people want to like, you know, they could, uh, if they want to learn more about the information mm -hmm. I'm presenting here, they can find it in my YouTube videos. They can find it in my, some of my blog articles and also from the names that I mentioned previously, you know, these are all great people and um, you know, there's a ton to learn from them. And if mm -hmm. you can take, you know, if you can learn a little bit from these people, you're going to drastically improve your workouts. Yeah. And really, really happy. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I think the most important thing is like, this is information you can use for the rest of your life. You know, it's not a, it's not a one month workout program. It's principles and principles, yeah. but you're, you're going to stay with you forever. That's exactly it. This is not a program. Mm -hmm. These are exercise principles that can and should be applied to everybody's training in order mm -hmm. to make them optimally effective, time efficient and safe. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Jay, uh, for coming on. I really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Hey, it's Jake again. If this podcast provided you any value, I'd encourage you to share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. In addition, it'd really help me out a lot if you would go and subscribe or leave a review for my podcast. It's super easy. And in addition, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love for you to reach out to me by email or Instagram DM, which can both be found on my website. Thanks.